So, hello and welcome to this episode of Share Your Hotness with your host, Lita Green, and my guest, Melissa CV. Now, Melissa and I go way, way back. And I'm not even sure how far back, but I know that I've always loved you since I've known you. And so much so that I was disappointed that you were a little bit older than my nephew. (laughs) I remember these conversations. Yes. Yes. Because my nephew is also this really cool world traveler and you're this really cool world traveler. And he's this person who's like trying to figure out how to use his entrepreneurial genius to like help local populations and people that might be left behind by our economy. And you do this. And I'm like, they could go like change the world together so I was super sad that that you guys weren't the right age but it all worked out for him and spoiler alert it all worked out for you true and we were just talking about your cute baby yeah and I've seen your baby was it in Uganda that you're like yeah we just got back Uganda Mm -hmm. this little white fat cuteness bundle and these cute ladies like loving on them you know and you were saying how you didn't realize how cool it was to be a mom. True. And, and especially a mom of a newborn. It's been so fun. She's yeah. And so I told funny. you that I love all the phases of being a mother. I've loved my kids as newborns and two-year-olds. And it's, it's helpful to know what they're mentally going through. Cause like, mm-hmm. there's a reason two-year-olds tear everything apart. They're seeing if it's still the same. <laughs> so I was like, oh my crap, isn't this so exciting? It's still the same, son. Let's put the pots back together now. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and that helped to know that. But I the only phase that I am not loving is the moving out phase. And I yeah. am not brave and I am not this empty nester. I love my husband and we will be just fine. But I literally have glassy eyes right now because oh. I am in the last year. Yep. Well, I don't like it. I don't like the moving out face. I don't like it at yeah, all. Yeah. Yeah. I got a ways before that. So yeah. And they're good years. They're so, so <laughs> great, but I, it always makes me sad when parents are like, nah, I don't want this kid. I'm like, you know, that kid hears that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And having heard some of those kinds of messages growing up, you know, it's, it's not, it's not healthy. It's not healthy. Okay. Yeah. So I have done a long tease as to how awesome you are. So tell me where you are now and let's get into your story of trajectory and where all these fun things have happened. Take it away. Okay. Um, yeah. So I, I kind of chose from your rocks of hotness. Yes. Um, So the campfire Mm -hmm. has Mm. the rocks around it, Mm. right. That helps the flat, the flames be hotter because you can be a wildfire Mm. burning out of control or be a campfire that per molecule is hotter than a wildfire mm. because it's in control of itself. Oh, oh. See, there you go. And that is why I'm called hotness. Not just because I'm incredibly good looking. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, so I, I chose trajectory because I do think that my trajectory has been unexpected and um, like I, I, joke with people that like, especially when I'm talking to people younger than myself. So I'm in my late thirties and talking to college students, um, and saying like, if at 24 years old, if I would have been able, like been asked to guess 10 things about my life in 10 years, 
I think I would have got like eight of them wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And I really mean that. Like I, life was way different than I thought at 34. Yeah. Um, and so my trajectory has been surprising. It's been, um, it, it's felt like I've had to reinvent my, my idea of my future multiple times, but it has also been more exciting and richer than I ever expected. And so I love the implied in this is that because you're willing to reinvent, you weren't stuck in what you didn't get. Yeah. You know, because I think so often we, I, I've had, I could tell you stories of where I have been like, ah, I didn't get what I wanted. And I mm-hmm. had a period of being stuck and it makes you bitter and upset. And, you know, the human body we're, we're made to deal with change and movement and our brains, if our bodies are made that why aren't our brains that way. Right. Yeah. So you, you know, also were resilient, right. And that you're like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And you figured out how to like make the world a better place. I love that. So I wanted you to be my n- niece-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So tell us the story. Tell us where do you want to start it? Um, I, I know fun things about what you've done, but I know it's had some evolutions. Yeah. So, uh, I guess the, where I kind of my starting point for a lot of the things I'm doing now was 2009. So I actually, I'll back up further. Uh, I was a special ed teacher in 2005, I think. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that kind of feeds into what just happened two weeks ago. Um, that's, we got a story arc already built up. Yeah. Here. Oh yeah. It. Oh yeah. Okay. Edge, edge your seats, everybody. Okay. Edge your seats, people. <laughs> Unless you're driving, sit back where you're comfortable. Oh yes. True. Safety first. Um, so I was a special ed teacher and over the course of teaching and, uh, and even before that in my internships and, and other experiences, I had interacted with several children that had been adopted internationally and mm-hmm. Um, were in my special ed classroom. Uh, and uh, I started seeing this pattern where several of them had very physical disabilities that have nothing to do with mental disabilities. And yet my class was for severe mental disabilities. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. And yeah. And started thinking like, what is the story here? And, and I, I started looking into kind of the conditions for people with disabilities and in around the world. And um, particularly in low resource settings, it is common for children to be abandoned when they have a physical disability. And so they're then possibly placed in an orphanage, um, maybe then like are, are on the And it's very or... easy for us who have government programs, you know, safety nets to be like, wow, how could they do that? But literally yeah. it could drag down the survival of the whole family. Mm-hmm. There could be... Um, tell me if I'm wrong. I don't know if this, how prevalent it still is, but you know, there's a curse and that's going to be unlucky, mm-hmm. you know, and that child is not going to have an opportunity at life. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also when they see uh, an orphanage where kids are being fed and they said, this will be better for this mm-hmm. child to, to leave this child in, in the care of these people. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so whether this be through, um, through neglect or, you know, under resources or, or potentially abuse, these children then 
may have gained disabilities after birth. Um, and, and that's where they were in, that's why they were in my classroom. And so um, seeing that, I just like, it kind of lit this fire of like, how can we prevent this? How can we go to the source and like prevent children from gaining disabilities? Right. And that's where I um, kind of got into looking into grad school and, um, and public health. Uh, there's kind of a fringe of public health, but public health is about prevention of disease and disability. And so I went that direction, got into grad school um, at Brigham Young University and, and started studying this. And uh, in the summer between the two years of schoolwork, I went to China and worked in an orphanage for kids with disabilities. Um, and so I was kind of, and, and I was, uh, worked on some health trainings with the staff there. So it's kind of like merging my two worlds right. at that point. And, and then, and actually that was kind of my last, um, big experience with disabilities after grad school. I actually, I think it was two days after graduation, I flew to Uganda, um, to, uh, to work for an organization there where I was, uh, coordinating internships for college students in Uganda for the summer. So you, and, you moved to Uganda. Yeah. For four months. So, oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So it was, it was a period of time. And, and while I was there, I was focused a lot more on public on more, um, more traditional public health problems. So we were, we were doing some, uh, some programs around HIV awareness, um, around disease prevention through, like hand washing with soap and um, and some different different uh, projects we were doing in the community. But while I was there, I got to know several families that had kids with disabilities just from being there in the environment right. and and seeing the very difficult situations that many of these kids were in. Families that loved them so much, but definitely in in low resource settings very often having a, a child born with a disability may drive a family further into poverty. And so it is, it is a difficult situation. And so uh, yeah, many of these really children, hard. yeah. And, and um, that summer uh, myself and a couple of colleagues, as we saw the situation of um, many different uh, families where women had the economic burden for the home, but there was very few jobs for women. So this led to intergenerational poverty. Um, we started an organization to employ women to make jewelry. So there's a, a nonprofit that still exists today. Okay. So the, they, the women are in charge of making the money mm -hmm. and taking care of the kids. I, yeah. I don't want to be like male bashing, but where, where are the, where are the dads? You know, over the course of many years, I've come to be more sympathetic to the, like the situation for men in, in such a setting. Whereas I was really angry in the beginning. <laughs> And, and this question of where are the men, but really understanding the, the change just in the last few decades from um, largely agriculture-based society to urbanization and wow. in traditional societies, uh, such as in Uganda, very often like the, the self-worth the worth to society of a man is making money, you know, providing and for women, it's ha ha having babies. Mm -hmm. And in this situation of urbanization where there's no jobs, 
they it go to just, the city. Yeah. But also in the city, it's like there, there are no jobs. And so there are, it, there's a lot of despair and drinking and, and these problems that just really have disrupted family life. Mm-hmm. And so, I, and so I've, I've started seeing, and, and in the beginning, we were really f- focused on only employing women. We now employ men and women around, in, around the world in, in our work. Um, Cause both need uh, access to both, to, both need to eat. Yeah. Come to find out. And, yeah, and, both- and, and we need, and we need both men and women. That's why I was kind of like, I don't want to get into male bashing here, but you know, you need, you need, you need some sperm to make a baby. So, you know, sure. where, where are they, you know, and then there's, you know, situations of war and yeah. historically yeah. men fight in wars, you know, yeah. where we women can't take a man and, you know, a fellow soldier and throw him over our back and run with a 50 pound rucksack. So until we can do that, I don't want us to go to war. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully we, if we just can get over war in general, but when people are like, let's have equal rights. I'm like, we do. We do have equal rights. We have the ability to work. Nobody's like, you know, you're in your period. You're going to break my typewriter if you touch it, like, you know, in ancient societies, right? Or in places around the world, you know, we have so much, um, but we are not exactly the same. Yeah. We are physically built differently and we are wired a little differently as a general generalization. So, mm-hmm. yeah, a lot of yeah. despair. That's, you take away, I think Shakespeare said to a woman, her work is a thing of heart to a man. It no, to a woman, it's a thing of a part. Her work is a thing apart. And to a man, it is a thing of his heart. Hmm. So I might not be paraphrasing that correctly, but you take work away from a soul. It's damaging. You take it away from a man. It's even more. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. You know, that's what I have seen from, from, what I've experienced is that it, it has been very difficult for, for men in this situation. So, yeah. Uh, so, so I had just kind of observed, we did one day with, we had some volunteers one day where we brought children with disabilities together in the community and their parents. And, and there's no, there were no resources for these, uh, for these children and their families. So, very often to be able to work, uh, whether there's one or two parents in the home, these children would have to be left at home uh, and sometimes left alone alone at home while parents were working. And you throw a disabled kid in the mix as well. Yeah. And that and that's where just really hard situations, like so impossible decisions for families to make. No parents. You've got your 12-year-old daughter home alone. You know. Those are scary scenarios of cycles repeating. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but, but then also just caretakers that are doing so much to care for their child when it's difficult to make ends meet. So, so, so many hard, hard, hard scenarios. Uh, but we did start this organization and. Um, the jewelry making. Yeah. Um, so that's called. That, is that one mm-hmm. still called Musana? It, we changed it to Mavira and that's a whole story in itself. Okay. We had okay. to change the name because of another nonprofit, blah, 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 but it's right. called Mavira collective. And it's the same organization that, that has been going on since 2009. Um, yeah. And so, uh, a few years in, uh, one of our new artisans, it was actually a year after she was working with us. We found out that she had a son with, 
um, severe cerebral palsy that Mm -hmm. she would have to leave at home. She's a widow. So she'd have to lock him at home while she came to work and, and he was unable to feed himself to toilet himself. And so um, that was a heartbreaking situation. And again, she just, it's all she could do. And one of her sons would run home uh, to feed him. His name was Ashraf to feed him at lunch. Sometimes when he could from school, he could, he could uh, run and, wow. and take care of his brother, but not all always. And, and so, being in school is, is a, not a given. Yeah. So is he risking his place in school running home to do that? I don't know. I, I, I'm sure. But, but I think during lunch, he would go when he could. So um, this boy Ashraf, we went and met, met him um, and kind of saw the, the dire situation that was there. And so this is where like the, the idea really started that there needs to be a place in our community for children with disabilities, both for them and for their parents. And, um, and so we had over the past several years, um, this has just been a side project to my more main work, but, um, we had visited some, some orphanages around Uganda that cared for kids with disabilities and really beautiful organizations. Um, but we, we started hearing from many of them that when that, that some of them, they would say weekly, they would have a child dropped off at their doorstep with disabilities that they would then care for. And, um, and we thought, you're talking about these, these orphanages that would get mm -hmm. a weekly influx of Mm -hmm. a new disabled child. Yeah. So they weren't saying, okay, we have more space for kids. No. Yeah. So, and, and having had the experience of seeing the home life of many of these children, and again, these impossible decisions that parents are having to make, we realized that this is not a, a parent like flippantly abandoning their child. This is like, this child will get food. This child will get nourished, like will, will be taken care of in a way that I cannot. And so this is in the best interest of my child. And as we saw that, we so, thought so yeah. hard. Yeah. So hard. Yeah. yeah. Um, as we saw that, we, we thought, what if we could make a place where we could support families to keep their kids at home, but we could be a support. We can provide resources so they can keep their children. And that's the best scenario for a child to stay with their family. And so that's what kind of really built the vision of what's now called the Ashraf Ability Center. So it's named after oh, Ashraf. I, yeah, I caught that. I love that. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> ah, that, that gets me. Yeah. Is Ashraf still with us? No. So we broke ground for this building and we kind of were fundraising in pieces for several years. So we broke ground in 20, like late 2018. And in February of 2019, Ashraf passed away. So he was never able to access this, this center. That Um, makes me even more sad. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Um, And, and actually so this brings us to the current day. Uh, that's why I went over with an eight month old baby is that it was time to open the center. And so we went, it ended up being an amazing time. I went with my husband and child and um, several others that have participated in, in making this happen, including a, a professor at Brigham Young University who's, who's um, 
over the special education department and is, is going to be like uh, really running the, the U.S. side and communicating with teachers and, um, and several funders that made this happen that are just amazing and, and very um, generous. And so it was this 13 years later after this first um, exposure to the situation, we now have this beautiful center um, and are really excited about, we have an incredible Ugandan staff that loves um, these children have, have training to do, um, you know, education, physical therapy, um, medical evaluations. And so um, we're excited to see um, this program grow. And, and uh, we have about, we have 98 children on our roster, but only have like 10 to 15 that are there each day. And then in the, that's just for the morning hours. And then in the afternoon, um, the staff goes out and does home visits for children that are too far away from the center or um, who may have uh, medical complications that they couldn't come, different things. And so um, they're really carrying quite a big um, caseload uh, of children in the surrounding villages. Um, but hopefully being able to uh, really provide what each of these children needs on these children and their families need on an individual basis. And um, just before we left, we met with the town council and they have funding that they want to put towards the parents that are involved with the center to give them um, income generating opportunities so that they can um, be able to make money while their kids are in the center. And that's, so the kids are there. So is it kind of like a a daycare for a school setting? Yeah. Yeah. So but, can, you know, an educate, okay. An educational yes. care. So they're getting the physical and intellectual uh-huh. support, which yeah. goes back to why are these kids that have been adopted from other countries so far behind academically that they're labeled mm-hmm. special ed, even though it's just a physical disability they have mm-hmm. um, because delays lead to mm-hmm. intellectual limitations yeah. um, that are not genetically there or yep. developmentally. I'm not even sure what the right term is. Um, so this is, they're being able to have, um, kids that if they just have, don't have a leg or cerebral palsy, but they have wonderful brains can fully grow and their parents can work. Yeah. And, and both. So we have kind of a wide spectrum of ability levels, um, and from mental disabilities to physical disabilities only. Yeah. Um, But again, those with we see this in this country all the time. I was checked out the other day, um, you know, when I was buying something by a gentleman who clearly had some mental issues, you know, of delays of some sort. I don't know what it was. It wasn't like I was going to ask him. And, but um, when um, he checked me out, you know, I was, you know, $28 and he put it into coins, how many pennies it was, (laughs) you know, he told you that. Yeah. He like can just automatically do that, you know? And he just told me how many pennies I just spent. And I was like, thank you. That's very helpful information, you know? Um, But the way he interacted was very jilted. So I don't know if that's severe autism or whatever, but the point is, is he is able to be a contributing member and have the joy of interacting with other people and having a work, Mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, having a cashier is an important 
an important segment of our society. We need to pay for the food, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. So is that kind of your hope is that by being able to be stretched to the most of their intellectual capacity, that even a disabled person would be able to find work in Uganda is the Uganda society open to disabled people being openly out in society? Um, to varying degrees, um, I would say physical disabilities. Yes. Like, um, for whatever reason, many, um, people that have like, uh, or at least I know, I know several in in our community in Uganda that have, um, like a lame leg, but they're shoemakers. So that's like, there's, there's a handful of of men that I know. I only need one shoe. So I've got time to make you shoes. There you go. Um, yeah, so I'd say physical disabilities, there, there is a, a place, but intellectual, disabilities not yet. Is, yeah, there is a lot of stigma that still exists. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's hopefully what will, um, keep being able to improve as, as, as people are able to interact with the center. Yeah. yeah when I, um, lived in Washington, DC, which was 25 uh, years ago. So 26 years ago that I met this friend and she was from Austria, I think. Um, and she, you know, spoke several languages, you know, very normal European in that sense and was in a car accident where her fiance was killed and she became physically disabled from that needing a wheelchair and also was, um, made deaf and her family expected her to not be out because having somebody that was in a wheelchair was unacceptable. And she was explaining to me, and I think of, you know, if it was Austria or something like that, it was some Slavic kind of area, maybe. But it really surprised me that in countries that I saw as very equal to us, as far as standard of living, that you don't have wheelchairs. And then I was like, sure enough, as I've traveled through Europe, it's very rare to see a wheelchair ramp. Hmm. And you're like, huh. Okay. And having been in a wheelchair, uh, for about a year, these are, these are things that I notice Cause I'm like, this would be really difficult to get around and how open our society is to accepting the cashier. That's got the mental disability to mm-hmm. having wheelchair ramps for those without disabilities to celebrating, um, that. And I, I, I have, I'm going to have foot surgery in a bit and I'm going to be in a wheelchair again. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I can still do my life. Mm-hmm. It'll be fine. You know, I did it before and do it again, but I'm inspired by seeing people out and about doing things. And I'm like, I can do that again. Right. Yeah. And, um, how our society would be lacking to not have these people of physical disabilities or mental disabilities, not the same thing, but we all have to kind of augment around it. Um, that these other societies around the world are not as open to that. Yeah that they expect it to be unseen uh-huh. yeah. and unaccommodating and you're helping to change that. So maybe in a generation or less, hopefully these pioneers that are in your program will be able to open doors in Uganda. That is the hope. Yeah. Yeah. But that's how we make change, right? In the hearts of people. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So how it, you think about, you know, these kids just being abandoned and now, even if 
I mean, we hope that they can have meaningful lives of productivity and feeling good about something. And you're making that happen for that community in that sense, but you hope that even beyond your center that it will expand, that people can see what a useful, um, what, you know, how useful people can be that might have intellectual capacity limit different than what's normal. Yeah, and I think, I mean, this is a, a small, you know, a small area of the world and, but in general, it really is, I think as societies are able to, um, like this is correlated, you know, it's not with a, a certain, um, like culture or, or anything. I think the biggest correlation is poverty. And like, as we, as, as a world community can open up economies to benefit places that, that don't have, um, you know, the resources. I think that's the biggest thing to change this because it's out of abundance that we're able to like value every member of society. Whereas again, just knowing the individual situations of these families, like it's so hard when, um, when there's not social programs there, you know, that's why we can value children. But when they're, the programs are not there, like anybody in any culture would have, you know, it, it, it changes the right. relationship. I think that's yeah. a very important point. Um, this is not about culture or color of skin or anything like that, that, you know, you take away all of our modern conveniences and, you know, throw us into the zombie apocalypse or whatever, we too would be forced to make those same decisions. And that yeah. goes back yeah. to a question of, um, you know, othering and empathy and looking at people and realizing, you know, as the Bible says, you know, um, by the grace of God, go I, you know, that we see somebody who's different than us. Do we look at them and judge, or do we think, wow, if I were in their same situation, could I do any better? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, it's a, it's a different question, but I, I'm kind of loving this idea of like the whole world. And you, you kind of went in and said, well, it's just a very small part of the world. And I think anyone listening, um, we all impact a small part of the world. Mm-hmm. And you chose to impact a part of the world that you had, that, you know, weird trajectory of life that you ended up landing in Uganda of all places because you could find the same kind of problems, um, probably a lesser extremity, you know, in Chicago, mm-hmm. right? You know, we can find that you know, I focus a lot on the Native American populations because I have this whole identity with it and it's, it's easy, <laughs> you know, it's not a plane flight, it's just eight hour drive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can do that as a part-time passion, you know, mm-hmm. I can make an impact, but in our own homes is a small part of the world and we can make that a beautiful place. Mm-hmm. And in our own communities, you know, we can radiate out that we're doing something for a small part of the world. And in the, and really that changes the world. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if, if there were a thousand Melissa CVs in the world, there would be a thousand of these centers. Hmm. And because, um, that the world is better than it's ever been as far as more, less people living. Well, these were 2019, the pandemic and, um, food policies are driving us in the wrong direction, but, we hit a we hit a point in 2019 where there were less people living in poverty than had ever lived ever. Yep. I'm so glad you 
recognize that. So many people are like, this world is getting so bad. And I'm like, actually, when you look at the like actual data, we have less poverty. We have like more education. Mm -hmm. We have like a higher consciousness because we're not thinking about like, where is my next meal coming from? Like so many good things, but yeah, the pandemic has, has been I, that's a really important point. Like when we are not in survival, we can think beyond, but I think this, oh, the world is so bad is getting to, and I would love to have a discussion about this, what you see, because, um, you've been in the trenches. I've traveled a lot, but I haven't created a center, you know, uh, you know, lazy me, (laughs) (laughs) um, but lack of travel that we haven't seen beyond what we're used to seeing, Mm -hmm. you know? And I'm talking international travel, um, travel to poor areas of America, like realizing that if you have a dishwasher, you have a high level of privilege. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you're making over 50,000 a year to the world's population, that is a high level of privilege. Mm-hmm. And we call that close to poverty in this country, mm-hmm. what we define as poverty. So we've got travel and we have misplaced ideas of privilege expectation Mm -hmm. and it's funny how people you know will um you have privilege because it's something i can see Mm -hmm. when that has nothing to do with your actual circumstances yeah you know i mean there's have you been to the appalachians (laughs) (laughs) you know um you know it's uh it's a very it's a very interesting question so what would you say would be the reason we get so messed up on thinking the world is bad when the world is actually as a, well we're heading the wrong directions we're not going to grow enough food and i'm very concerned about the yeah. third world on that oh totally food security and yeah yeah i mean um, mm-hmm. people are complaining about the price of food and that is definitely a problem for at least 70 percent of americans mm-hmm. but we're not likely to starve in this country yeah Right. But, um, yeah, there, I am forgetting the name of the book. I will tell it to you later and you can put in the show notes or something. Okay. Yeah. But uh, a really great book that, um, the author does like kind of social science research, looking at, um, education rates globally and, and all of these things. And he, he would do just a quiz with like professors or, you know, just people that are, are very well informed. Um, questions like are more like now compared to 20 years ago are are more girls in school the same or less um are there uh you know is the is there more people in poverty the same or less um all these different measures like is there more war the same or less and going on and on. And he, his joke was that like, after the results would come out, what people would choose in this quiz and what the, the reality was, he was like, a monkey could do better at this than you. Cause you got less than 50%. Wow. Yeah. Like a monkey that's just randomly choosing. Um, and on all accounts that he had measured, the world is in a better place except environment environmental mm-hmm. stuff mm-hmm. and and that's just really which, interesting so i so one another thing, thing of privilege you know mm-hmm. like um i have a hybrid car so i'm guilty of this and i have solar panels so i'm guilty of 
lowering my environmental impact, which is lowering my overall electrical money that I'm having to put out, gas money mm-hmm. I haven't put out. Mm-hmm. But in order to manufacture said solar panels and mm-hmm. battery for my electric hybrid car or whatever technology, I know it's this way for electrics, we are offloading that environmental imprint into other countries. You know, the producer lithium yeah. production is very, very um, dangerous, bad yeah. for the environment, bad right. for the worker. Right. So we're like, oh, look at the third world and how much they're polluting mm-hmm. when they're producing goods that we are using to feel good about ourselves. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I got solar panels because I'm a little bit of a, you know, my last name's Green. So I'm a little bit of a tree hugger in that sense. Great. Yeah. But, um, you know, I also like not having to pay a $200, well, pre then, you know, $200 electric bill. Yeah. So it just made financial sense, right? Like it was, and I'm in a position where I can go and buy $30,000. I mean, again, privilege. Mm -hmm. So I'm literally offloading my environmental impact to the third world. And then people are like, oh, it's so good of you to have solar panels. And I'm like, no, I'm pampered. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah, I am totally pampered. And so if you can, you know, um, you know, we have government, you know, Pete Buttigieg saying, well, we just all need to go electric. Everyone go buy an electric car. Well, the average price for an electric car is Mm $66,000. I mean, I got a used Prius, you know, not $66,000. Who can afford to do that? Very few people can do that. So we're driving out this country saying we're the leaders of environmental impact, but really we're the creators of environmental degradation. Yeah. But yet they need jobs. Yeah. 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 So many yeah. complex systems, but it, it is super like, okay, it's good. And then people are like, oh, you know, fast fashion. And I'm like, well, I'd rather be, I mean, I tend to use my clothes, but wouldn't it be better to work making factory than lithium batteries? <laughs> you know, like where's all these ethical lines? Yeah. So I just, you know, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting question, but I think a lot of it almost gets a religious fervor of look how good I am. Mm -hmm. I'm a very righteous person and you are not, oh, and we're doing it from the first world to the third world Mm -hmm. who's making that possible for us. Sure. So yeah, that's an environmental thing that I, I don't know what the answer is, but yeah. I think maybe the start is not being hypocrites about it. <laughs> right. Right. Well, and I was going to say, I mean, so, so you're saying what, what is the, wh- like, why are people like the world Thinking is it's so, so bad. bad? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, One I, is I, yeah. Like is our access to information, right? So we're seeing more war than people 50 years ago saw. And so that's one thing that it's more top of mind. And, and our right. new cycle is like, especially in the last few years, as we've moved to like this daily news cycle, like we're not covering long-term events. We're like covering like what happened today and what's going to sell. And that's really unfortunate because that's, it's right. giving and us a few. We get in echo chambers of information. Right. Right. So I was going to say, yeah, absolutely. Like the uh, polarization that exists. And so we're thinking like th- that we're not and <laughs> right? This has been the last like decade that feels like it's really become this way that like many people don't know someone that voted different than them or don't, or, or wouldn't consider somebody a friend recently that, um, it was something about, um, 
like a Republican would be willing to date someone that wasn't of their same ideology politically, but that a Democrat was like 70% less likely, hmm. you know? And, um, you know, it, it's very interesting. And I think the difference is that when you go to a church, you are constantly bombarded with people of different, it, the only thing that's uniting you is that you're like there to like, think about God, mm -hmm. but you may not like the same things. You may not have the same taste and you're going to have different opinion on politics. Yeah. Right. Cause you can interpret these things all different ways. And I mean, look at the Bible, how many different ways people interpret the same verse, right? Yeah. So I think that that exposes people to this idea that people can be different than me and still be good. But then when you don't have a community that you're, that, you know, you're, everything's more in line that makes you think, oh, these people are bad. So that was my personal theory. Why that was such a big gap from like, you know, like 70% less is a pretty big gap of, I will not have friends of other different ideas. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, I don't have this, the study right in front of me, but that was something I chewed on for a couple of days. And that was what I came to mm. maybe why that is for sure. I mean, and thinking about like, uh, to your point, potentially one of the only places that, and this is particular to Utah, <laughs> Um, huh. where congregations are geographical, uh, it definitely lends to, or obviously, uh, Latter-day Saint congregations are geographical. Um, that is a pretty unique scenario that people mm -hmm. are like having to interact with people very different. Than you're them. right. You're right. I mean, and then there's also people you know, will shop for a church family more in other faiths where we're, you know, if you and I happen to be at the same faith, um, that, you know, it's like, no, you're going to church at this place because your address is here. Like I moved congregations cause they moved the boundary. Mm -hmm. I hadn't moved. They just moved mm -hmm. the boundary, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and having those, I mean, whether it's religious or non, like having places where people can be with their neighbors and, and work together on goals is probably the biggest thing that our society. And I, I would say like, like, yeah, the United States society, needs is people being able to work together that are very different ideologies um yeah because we lack that a lot yeah because this, you know anciently historically however you want to frame it um we have always lived in communities and now we can be you know in our phones pursuing whatever information we want on a computer we can seek out a community that right that mm -hmm. agrees with us on every point yeah. And it's very easy to like, you know, get mad at somebody on Facebook or put out something that's against a group, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And so, um, but where we couldn't do that before, you know, literally being removed from your tribe or your community would mean exposure to the elements and you needed a community just to have water or yeah. grow, grow food or whatever. I mean, it meant death. Yeah. So we all need community. So how, how are we making sure that community is helping us thrive in our worldview of empathy and compassion for others? Totally. Yeah. Okay. So we have travel, we have information, too much of one kind of information. What, mm -hmm. what else do you think having 
traveled the way you have and gotten in the trenches the way you have that we think America is so bad or Western way of life? Yeah. Uh, I think it is the, um, like with everything online, like we're, we're missing the human component and like, so, I mean, this is tying into the other points that we've made, but like interacting with people face to face and mm-hmm. rather than online, like you said, we can be mean online and it's yeah. and less consequences. Um, yeah. So that we're, our lack of connection to each other is yeah. driving, you know, the mental health crisis that we're facing in the, in the U S um, yeah. well, with the, isolation you know, you have this agreement. And, um, recently I, I said something on Facebook and a bunch of people decided to chime in and this one gentleman was disagreeing with, and supposing a lot of things about what I'd said, cause it was a very brief little thing. I don't even remember what it was. Anyway, he ended up calling me fat, you know, and desperate because I was hugging my son in the picture. And I was like, does he think I'm going to be upset that he thinks I'm fat? Does he think that I'm like suddenly like, oh, I do look like a desperate cougar that I'm hugging a young man, you know? And some other people started like chiming in, but I thought, isn't it interesting that when he couldn't answer the debate that it became a personal attack and I'm like, does that work? And evidently it does because we're still so animalistic in how we, you know, in the kindergarten playground, we don't want to be the kid that was weird or left out or right. Mm-hmm. And that, that echoes back to this need for a tribe mm-hmm. that Connection. we don't like, but I'm very clear on who's my tribe. And I don't care if somebody outside of my tribe praises me or dislikes me because um, you know, I have, we have the whole discussion, but it basically pulls you into um, narcissistic circles. If you are allowing people who are the loudest voice to dictate how you feel about yourself. Mm-hmm. And so um, I thought that was really interesting. And you see it all the time that it's like, it just degrades very quickly to personal attacks instead of let's talk about policy. Let's mm-hmm. talk about political decisions. Let's talk about different ideas. It's if I don't agree with you, you are bad. Yeah. And that's that disconnect you're talking about that yeah. can be so, so dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Heavy stuff. So how do we solve the world in our own little circle, Melissa? Cause you've, you've, uh, you've made a really vibrant life for yourself. And I love how you've gone from being in one classroom all day long. That's what a special ed teacher does mm-hmm. to literally making the world, your classroom. Hmm. And finding a place that you could go deep and make a real impact. You know, the, the whole starfish story, right? Like to this one, it makes a difference, you know? <laughs> um, what, what has been a common theme in that trajectory of from one corner to another corner of the world? Um, just to speak to my own journey and what's, what has helped me be able to maybe do some, um, some uncommon or, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just kind of take some paths that, that I, I didn't expect. And that, um, yeah, that, that kind of surprised me was following curiosity 
Mm-hmm. And um, being okay with even like the some of the prescribed ideas of what a woman should do or um, yeah, and I was single till I got married at 36. So I had a lot of years on my own and like <clears throat> um, some of the like, uh, especially the ideas of the older generation mm-hmm. that yeah. were kind of disapproving of me that didn't kind of wandering. have the same choices we have. Right, right. And so it's very easy to be like, I am content with what I have without choices. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know, yeah. like so women are like, this is a good life because it's safe. Uh-huh. Men are like, this is a good life because it's safe. You know, speaking as older generations can, but we can still have, you know, the home, the life, all of that. And mm-hmm. yeah. So doing some unconventional things, uh, stepping into ambiguity I think that that's been a theme for me is like being okay with like ambiguity I like that yeah uh not not really knowing where this path is leading um but kind of and following like um passion or gifts that you know I feel like spiritual gifts that like that I think what I love and what like really gets me excited following that um, and that's led to some really interesting experiences, which, you know, is interesting because if you'd gotten what I imagine you wanted the trajectory of your life to be, yeah, you would not have had the bandwidth to do maybe the things you've done. No, it, uh, still making well, an impact, still really important, still incredibly valuable for the world, you know, to be a mom. Cause I am never going to ditch that. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, to, to dish that, to just whatever. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to put that down for clarity, but isn't it interesting how you allowed the disappointment of something to turn into let's embrace it. Yeah. You know, I actually said when I was in Uganda, this, this past time with my husband and child, and I, I spent probably a couple of years living in this community in Uganda over, over the course of the last 13 years, just a few months at a time. And I said, just being here, like I always dreamed about this, like bringing my family here. And this trip is like healing my like 27 year old self. Yeah. It kind of felt like, and if, if we could get in either quantum physics or religious ideologies that are like, everything is present. It felt like that. Like it felt like there were times, uh, especially kind of my, my late twenties, I would spend several months at a time. And I was often the only like American in the community had great friends, great local friends, but it was still, you know, just some disappointment in what was happening with my life. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was a really beautiful time. And if you had never, if you'd stayed in the bitter, I'm loving this idea of you embracing your 27 year old self. I talked to little Lita a lot, Mm -hmm. like I can't change what happened, but I can tell you the story ends awesome. Right. Like, you know, to, and that you embraced her and she's standing there with you. Yeah. And that this dream is even better than what she would have made. You know, and if she had stayed 
not being curious, not being willing to go into the unknown without this like well-lit plan, mm-hmm. right? She would be a very different person. Yeah. And, you know, I also think about like, and I think especially in your twenties, when you're just so like figuring out who you are and what life is going to be, you just, there's this craving for surety and for like, I wish I could just see a glimpse into the future. And I remember thinking that like, I wish I could just see a glimpse that 10 years from now, I think I'll be okay. Like I'll be happy. And, (laughs) and what I've done, you know, just wishing that we could just even, yeah. Just just tell me, just tell me how it ends. I got to go to the end of the book. Yes, absolutely. But there's some beautiful things with not being able to see the future. Some, some really good things. One is that we don't have to look forward to the heartbreak that we're going to experience. We don't have to like have early trauma around it. (laughs) We'll just, we just have to take it as it comes. We don't, we don't have to like look forward to like, Oh, this really hard thing is going to happen. So that's, that's helpful. But then also we can be surprised pleasantly. Right. And that's cool also. And this is an interesting thing because, you know, of course that hits me with, um, you know, I buried a child. Yeah. And um, the, the despairing feeling that became a beautiful thing mm-hmm. is that I, you know, when she died, it was like, how do I do the rest of my life with this pain? But the beautiful side of it is I now no longer expect for everything to go my way. Mm -hmm. So I don't have a certain level of disappointment when failure happens, when, um, when people aren't as awesome as I think they should be. Mm -hmm. Right. I have let go of a lot of my expectations Mm -hmm. around what other people's reactions should be. Yeah. Which again, has made my circle tighter. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. but uh, I mean, I could go on for like an hour, but it has made my life richer and deeper than I could have ever comprehended. But if you'd asked me, I would have said no. Yeah. In fact, it was my deepest fear yeah. that, that I would have a child and never die. Mm. And, um, I think that's pretty universal to most people that, you know, we don't, we're not hardwired to, to not protect our posterity. Right. Right. And yet it has made my life richer. And so that's what I'm hearing you say is thank heaven for not having exactly what I wanted because you ended up getting what you wanted. Yeah. It was just at a different timetable and yeah. then we and, have and, to step and into a different that way fate, and right? a different brand. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you might not have five kids if that was what you were wanting yeah. <laughs> because being pregnant at 36 is a whole different animal, but you're in good shape. You love cycling. Your well, I husband, thought your engagement I, gift was a, a cycle, a, a bicycle, right? Like a cycling yes. bicycle. Yeah. That I is like, ring. I got a, yeah, it was pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, for sure. Uh, geriatric pregnancies. Now they call them like advanced maternal age over 35. <laughs> I used to think that was like, kind of like rude. And now I just think it's descriptive because it was hard, even though I, yeah, I live a pretty active lifestyle. Yeah. When I had my first successful pregnancy, my, but my sixth pregnancy at 29, I had a 19 year old girl that well-meaning kept giving me advice. It was also her first pregnancy, not my first, but my first that would equal baby. Mm 
And I tapped her on the arm and I said, do you think 10 years from now you're going to be smarter? And she was like, of course. And I was like, I'm there. <laughs> I'm already there. Yeah. So basically yeah. like, thank you, but stop giving me advice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a totally different animal. And I had my last at 36 and it put me in a wheelchair. So maybe if okay. I get in better shape. <laughs> No, I have a degenerative hip from the miscarriages. So that's why I was in the wheelchair. But wow. yeah, so I, I got a cool um, mobile device as well. Um, Melissa, I just have to say that because um, I know you and I got, I've got to see at the beginning, I feel like it was kind of the beginning because I, mm-hmm. I think you probably would have met around 2011 would be yeah, my guess. I think so. Um, and we connected pretty quickly. And despite the differences in our life circumstances or whatever, cause I'm an old lady, you know, um, in comparison, right. Um, that, um, you know, the, the bonds of friendship and being able to see how you have embraced with enthusiasm. That's what I saw was come what may. And that this exposure to real hardship, real loss made you more fearless because if they could do it and you knew them, then you can, you can deal with your first world problems of this business venture, not going exactly the way you want it or whatever. Yeah. And just you, I've just seen you go full out for anything that would help what you didn't even know what the full vision was and look where it is. And I'm sure you will continue to do pretty amazing things in your with your sweet little one and your, your life and the, the one you, the life you shot for and the life that was an amazing surprise and a gift to the people of Uganda. Oh, thank you. So thank you, my friend, for being on this episode of share your hotness with Lita green. Thank you, Melissa, for being on. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you for being on such a fun story. <laughs>